This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Uh, I'm in Wyoming right now and joined by Dan, who is uh, in Wisconsin still, I take it. Not going anywhere. This is the this is the new place to be. Do you still have to wait two weeks if you come back to Chicago? Yeah, I'm not allowed in Chicago, so it's great. I can't even go into the city. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that that was something that they uh, were trying to do before get you banned from there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they finally succeeded. anyway. Today we have a guest who still is in Chicago, and uh, he is the chief investment officer at Typhon Capital, uh, David Klusendorf, who more affectionately goes by Clue. That was a great little talk we had. Uh, it's been a while since we had someone who um, had been on the CME floor for so long and then kind of transferred and done the prop shop thing. And it, just very interesting. Absolutely. And just for those listening, Clue, the reason that's his nickname, that was his badge, KLU. So every trader on the floor, if you have, you're a member or you're leasing a membership, you put on, you get a badge. So I'm sure everyone's kind of seen Hoag's when he's doing his videos or something. It says H O A G. Um, so everyone has a badge or a little call sign on the floor, and that just becomes the nickname. What were you? Um, I had a couple different ones. Nothing really exciting. I wanted H D G, but my dad was H D G. Um, so I just ran under a bunch of randoms. You know, kind of sucked. I'd never had any of that cool swag because I was uh, up on the screens. I still had the pay god knows what for the cme over the years so i had a seat but i didn't get, i didn't have a jacket i didn't have a badge i just wore basketball shorts and sat around a bunch of people chewing tobacco that, that's i mean very similar to the floor except not basketball shorts a lot of guys wear sweatpants and uh, t-shirts but i remember when i first started down there it was i didn't i wasn't tie era uh, but i was you couldn't wear jeans and you had to have a collared shirt before that it was like no jeans, slacks, collared shirt, and a tie each and every day. Um, but they really loosened up the regulations towards the end. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the casualing down of America. And what a romantic industry it is and was. So anyway, we dive into that with a clue. But um, you know, rather than discuss the markets now, maybe we'll do a little bit in the outro. And right now, enjoy this Living Up interview with David Klusendorf. All right. Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined by the Chief Investment Officer at Typhon Capital, Mr. David Klusendorf, a.k.a. Dave, but uh, more a.k.a. Clue, we've learned. Clue, welcome back to uh, Limit Up. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? You know, I'm still recovering because I did the intro the last time you were on, and I misread and said Typhoon Asset Management because it just made that in my mind, and I felt like such an idiot. Uh, but... I'm so glad you're back so that I can apologize for that and uh, talk to you myself for a little bit. So thanks for joining. You're more than welcome. Yeah. So, uh, Clue, you have a lengthy history in trading at the uh, CME and doing your own thing. So maybe for people that didn't listen last year, you can give a, just a little rundown of your background and then we'll get into some trading stuff. Okay. Um, you know, I'm a really kind of a born and raised Chicago guy. Uh, I grew up in the Western suburbs and was fortunate enough to go to Loyola University, uh, uh, really on a basketball scholarship. That was the reason why I chose to go to school there. I come from an athletic family where most, you know, my brothers played college hoops and 
Uh, it was a great time to grow up in the Western suburbs. And there happened to be a options professor, which is really kind of ahead of its time when you're talking, you know, the mid 80s uh, at a university teaching option theory. And one thing kind of led to another. And I was introduced to uh, the guys that ran Thompson McKenna, which is a very old, now defunct uh, FCM. And, you know, they didn't have room for me. So they said, you know, there's a guy down the hall that, you know, we'd like you to introduce you. He's setting up shop here. That's how I met Thomas Petterfee, who at the time was running uh, Timber Hill. And he hired me to go over to the Merck. And so here it is, the spring of 1987, and on the Merck floor, helping keeping our position delta neutral. We were an option market making firm uh, in the S&P futures. So it, it, it granted me the opportunity to work with, uh, with Thomas on a day-to-day -day basis. So usually that pathway was probably a couple of years. Uh, for me, it was two weeks. And I found the membership papers on the desk one morning to fill them out. And so I started to, to trade for, you know, for the firm. And it was pretty, it, it was almost a brokerage situation. Um, but after a while, you know, that started to be, you know, discretionary. And, and uh, then all of a sudden the, you know, the stock market crashed hit in 87. I was just going to ask about that. So you were new and on the floor there in uh, on Black Monday, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, you know, people ask about the certain things. And I guess, you know, the things that kind of really kind of stick in my mind about it was, one, how fast the day went. I mean, it literally seemed like 15 minutes. You know, it's like you're there and all of a sudden the bell rings and the bell's ringing again because you're just so busy, right? You, you don't know. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to keep up with the flow and what's going on. Uh, and then the, the second thing that kind of, you know, went along with it, there used to be a statistic that, you know, the Merck had this big, huge board that overhung the, the pit where you could see lots of different products and lots of different stats up there. And there used to be a thing called tape. And it was telling you how long the tape, you know, was running behind. So, you know, the old days you had the stock ticker thing and it would, you know, the tape would come out of it. That's how it was nicknamed that. And at the end of the day, it was something like 21 hours behind. I mean, like, just think about oh, that. Oh, my yeah, gosh. You know, in today's age of where everything is so instant and you're wondering, like, why I can't keep up in micros, <laughs> you know, now you were looking at hours. <laughs> I mean, see how that snowballed things, right? If you didn't know what your positions were, if you were in or out or what you owned, you dumped S&P futures. That was more instantaneous to, to kind of know. So, uh, yeah, it was really a, uh, a different time with the way things, I mean, S&Ps traded in nickels, you know, not dimes, uh, let alone a, mi a micro or a, ma a mini nowadays. Uh, so th that was really my start. We expanded across the floor. Uh, I didn't really want to go to New York and stayed here. I had two young kids at the time. So I started to trade Euro dollars for myself and really kind of in Chicago fashion, you know, you start to expand, uh, you start to do well with it. And before I knew it, I had my own trading group. And that really went all the way till 2014. And that's where I met James. Well, I knew James Katulis, who's CEO of Typhon, because of MF Global. I was an MF Global customer. Uh, talk about a big shock, right? Like you walk in and, you know, they're talking about selling your positions out if they don't get a check that day. Um you know, there's lots of money missing from your account. You're getting phone calls, letters, telegrams from lawyers offering you, you know, 40 cents on the dollar for your debt. 
Yeah, there was no way. You know, Jack, there's no way that I was taking it. You know, I'm like, I'll, I'll go broke before, you know, I take a settlement with this because it was so wrong. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it awful. was awful. We took a big, we felt that one really bad too at my firm. We were with Dowd Westcott at the time. And I remember we got the call to come uh, from Dowd Westcott to come upstairs and talk about what's going on and how much money they need to let us stay open and keep trading. Yeah, for everybody listening out there, probably a good idea. Go uh, Wikipedia, MF Global, and kind of what happened there, because we could talk a whole episode about uh, that ordeal. Uh, I was luckily the firm I was at just very fortuitously we switched from MF Global maybe six months before, and yeah, so that's that's awful. So you wouldn't take that. No, you you know, Jack, and, and the the thing about it is. Um... I had stopped treating, you know, so many traders of that era treated their trading account like a checkbook, right? Like that's where I keep cash and then I'll just take the cash out. And we had started not to do that. So we had moved a lot of cash out because, you know, there was this influx of different products that you could put the money and you could be able to draw it out quickly if you had to satisfy a margin or anything. You know, now all that is very... You know, that, that's mainstream nowadays. But for that era, it, it certainly wasn't. And, you know, so we didn't get caught as bad as other people. You know, Dan, like I, I, I you know, obviously I know Mike and did know Dave Westcott. So that's where my account was held at that time. And I remember the line out the door of the office of guys just waiting in line to being processed. Yeah, I remember that. I was standing in that line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was it was really something else to see. So that's how I got to know James Catullus because James was the one that stood up and you know he represented the segregated accounts and on a couple hundred grand of donations he did the job and got our money back. Uh, you know I, I I don't know what to say about it. It you know it speaks a lot of James's character. It speaks a lot to you know what his sense of right and wrong is, and that was one of the reasons why when he asked me to come on board and help. Uh, I was like, okay, like, let's go to town. Let's see what we can do. So that's how I ended up here at, at Typhon, uh, was really that connection. And, you know, my trading group did well. Like, we made a good transition from the floor to the screen. I, I think looking back on it, one of the biggest adjustments was to truly be decentralized. You know, we used to come into an office. We had an office over at 100 South uh, Wacker, so across the street from the Merck. And I think we were subletting from FEMAT at the time. Well, they cleared out. So it was me and another trader. We had the two corner offices. We moved all the cubicles back and we had a chipping range inside. Mm. <laughs> that don't get higher ceilings in it, right? So there were pieces of carpet that were kind of worn down, you know, over the course of a year before, you know, the sublease was up and, you know, they kicked us out of it. But uh, yeah, it turned into a ghost town really, really quick. Yeah. So, Clute, what do you think the, uh, you know, starting going out and start your own place? Because that's a common way a lot of prop shops and groups start. Someone does well at trading and then they start forming their groups. Did you find that to be anything difficult about that transition? Because I know sometimes it's tough to, you know, have people in your group or whatever and not sort of micromanage or try and sometimes enforce your own thing on it. I've seen that sometimes at places I've been. So it is. And, and there's some you know, sort of happenstance with all of this too. So you're right. You start to make a little bit of money. And, you know, one of my best friends who lived across the hall from me at Loyola, um, by the way, his roommate was Mike Mulligan, uh, you know, Mulligan Hanley, you know, in the morning, uh, 
that's how I got to know a lot of those guys were that we lived on the same hall, along with Lou Canellis, who's, you know, the Fox sports anchor. So those guys were all classmates of mine. Sweet Lou. So Joe uh, started with me. Joe was a lawyer and an accountant, and he did not like what he was doing. And, you know, we were bumping into each other at the gym, playing a little hoop. And I said, you know, well, if I'm going to start and he doesn't make it, well, now I have someone that can do my books and my legal work. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good start. And, you know, it took Joe a while. And you're right. I think a lot of it, Jack, was my micromanagement of it at the beginning because it took him a good eight, nine months to get his feet going. But he came in with nothing as far as a background was concerned. Just his intelligence, obviously, if you're a CPA and a lawyer, you know, you, you have some smarts upstairs. So that was it. And then it just was really kind of organic. You know, you would run into somebody and you're like, okay, like this works, this works. And we were always set up three to five guys. And over those years, I ended up backing 22 guys uh, and only two, you know, really failed, I would say. But it was, uh, it was one of those things that this is what we were set up for. And then trying to raise a family with it, then you start having to make choices. You know, do I want to get in deeper to this? Am I satisfied with what's going on? Do I want to spend time with my my wife and my kids? And, you know, my the way I was raised, we kind of went more towards the wife and kids. I wanted to be part of what they what they were doing. So, you know, we never really got to be, you know, a big prop shop in that regard where there were lots of people running around. There just it was just never that way. And, and that actually made converting to the screen easier because. I didn't have to lay off a lot of people. You know, you lay off some clerks because they're no longer needed. Uh, I gave them an opportunity to come on board. Most of them didn't want to. They didn't want to trade. So, and we were early leaving. That was 02 when we really started to not be on the floor. Oh, wow. You were beginning a transition. You were trend setting at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know, Dan, it was, uh, we were one of the first users of Globex. You know, uh, gosh, I want to remember maybe GS was the front end. It was owned by the Merck. Uh, so, yeah, we were using it early just to kind of see. I think that had a lot to do with my Timber Hill background because, you know, we had all these trading screens on the floor and it was one of those things where, well, of course, this is the way it's going and we better adapt to it. People ask all the time, like, you know, like why, why do some people make it to the screen and others? I think the first is, you know, if you were relying solely on personal relationships, uh, you were probably one of the first to find the door. Then the other one was, well, I only want to trade one thing. And I think that's really myopic with all of it. To be able to know if you were an S&P trader that there are 20 derivatives to express an idea. And if you have a grasp of time and volatility, then if your ideas are sound, you should be able to profit from it. And geez, how many interest rate stuff is out there now? You know, there's right. a ton of stuff. So, you know, that was one of the things with, you know, the Euro dollar pit, because it's it's hard without throwing size up to really participate. So yeah, yeah I think the real reason. You know, why did it fizzle out in the end? It really simple. There was three of us left and you know, one of the guys was just like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. He had accumulated a good amount of wealth and just didn't want to do it. And the other one, just his heart wasn't in it. So then I was faced with the choice, do I repopulate this? And then, you know, Jeff Carter reintroduced me to James and the way we went. That's great. So tell us a little more about uh, Typhon. So it's a CTA and maybe for like the listeners, we can do a little short overview of what that is and the functions they do in the market. 
we're, we're a CPA, CPO, um, commodity trading advisor, commodity pool operator. Originally, we were put together to be pretty much a, a, a deconstructed multi-strat, right? Where we had lot, we had products that you could combine any way, shape, or form, or just take something out individually. And then, you know, with the space shrinking by leaps and bounds over the last three to four years and fee compression, you know, the it, it's been hard for any CT. There are a lot of them that have fallen by the wayside with it. And the fund to fund model isn't as prevalent as it once was. So, you know, that customer base shrinks. And all of a sudden now uh, we find the opposite where, you know, people come to us and go, yeah, I don't really want to choose. You choose. <laughs> you put something together <laughs> for me. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's unusual, but it is something to see how something kind of comes around full circle. Very cool. So what do you th- uh, say? you know, for your clients, what's what sort of the advantage of having, you know, uh, a CTA as part of your portfolio? So for us, it's pretty simple. It's non-correlation. You know, we're not correlated. So we're a good alt alternative uh, to everything. It, it's it's the biggest selling point with it. And then there's the variety of product we have, you know, like we trade livestock, grains, metals, um, we have macro traders, quants, uh, vol. So there's lots of things, energy that, that we can present to kind of see like where you're at with things. You know, if someone were to come to us and, hey, I already have an energy trader, so I don't need that component, but can you give me three or four other components? You know, we do a good job of mixing and matching. And then when it comes to structure and putting something together, um, you know, James has very few equals in that category. So my job really is to make sure that everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing from a trading perspective, uh, help them uh, when they need help with trade construction and how that goes into risk and how all that kind of ties together to produce a good, steady return. And, you know, those are famous last words. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that is that's part of trading, right? That's part of the risk of it all. Uh, we have some really basic beliefs. You know, the first is that time and volatility, if if you can't judge how volatile a market is and put that into context with how much time you need for your view to become a reality, I don't know how you even begin to think about how you can construct a trade. You know, if, if Dan came to me and goes, hey, you know, I think the S&Ps are going to go up in the next five hours. Hey, there's only one thing we're doing. Like, let's go play. Like, let's go see what we can do. You know, if he told me it was five months, I, I would say an outright futures position, you just will get stopped out. There's too much volatility in the market. So we have to come up with a different way to express it to get to that end. And then what other components do go with that? You know, uh, does it become a spread trade, an option trade, a gamma trade? You know, you could go on and on with the possibilities with it. So what's the average time frame of your some of your investors that are coming in? Are they as low as just a few hours? Or are they mostly long term? Oh no, they're, they're long term. I mean, when someone comes in as an investor, you know, uh, you know, they're looking to add something that's bigger. You know, the beta that they have in their portfolio obviously does what it does, and we're not a beta shop. You know, we're we're not doing that sort of trading. So they're looking for an alternative, and you know, that can be anywhere from five to ten percent of their portfolio is what they're looking for. They're looking for some balance in their portfolio. So depending on the type of customer it is, 
you know, some is more sticky than others. Yeah. I think we, uh, you know, we're all big fans of diversifying portfolios. And really, it's something that I see, you know, a lot of people that I know really not doing as much of, especially with, you know, their idea of diversifying is just having everything in equities, basically, a, a rapidly shrinking equity universe, uh, I might add. Stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the old uh, five stocks, like the S&P, you know, five. Um, yeah. And I think it is worth, you know, spreading things around, like, to, you know, take a look at things, you know, CTAs, real estate. Uh, if you can do it, if you have the ability to do so, that can really help smooth out your uh, returns in the long run. So that's cool. And you've served on a lot of risk committees. You were just talking about risk right there. Uh, what's this uh, last couple of months been like for you? Well, you know, let's, we were a little ahead of the curve. So George Michalopoulos is our energy crypto macro guy. And George comes to us through Citadel. And, you know, he's, a, you know, Mr. Phi Beta Kappa from UFC. So he's a really bright guy. He was really touting, you know, probably just before Christmas about, hey, listen, this COVID thing is for real and it's airborne and it could really get bad. So by the time, these discussions happen where we start to kind of, I'm not a big fan of groupthink, but in something like this, this is a little different, right? Because now you're talking about something that affects everything. So, you know, going back and forth, we started to really kind of form some good trading uh, positions that, you know, were, were put on board in interest rates and, and in the equities right along with it for George. And so he did extremely well, even with the energies during that time. But it was really like we closed down the office James and I go back and forth with it. I think it was at the end of the second week. He thinks it's the third week of February. So uh, I haven't been in our office since then, which is all right because, you know, I've done the at-home trading, you know, and that's got its own thing too, which, you know, was something that I was able to bring to the table. When I first started to do this from home home, where we just became decentralized, it's a slippery slope. I mean, I had a, a routine at one time that was really self-destructive in some ways to you know, start at five in the evening and then eat dinner and be back in front of the screen at 1030 and then again at one and then the morning. And then like, so how are you a husband? How are you a father? How do you do other things that make you who you are? Uh, it all becomes because if something really happens, then you're in front of the screen, you know, for the 23 hours it's open. And that's not I don't see that as a recipe for success. It's the exact opposite. So that was one of the things that at least we could talk about like, how do you do this? How do you break up your time? How do people chip in to cover at least the time span with it? But it was, uh, yeah, I mean, the month of March, if you take away Friday and Saturday, I was probably about two hours of sleep a day. You know, it wasn't much. I mean, like I was getting, I mean, I'm a little older guys. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, you're like, oh, you know, like I'm not, you know, I'm not 25 years old anymore. So let me ask you this. You're a part of 87. How did this compare to the 87 crash, obviously 100% on floor versus now on screen, but just kind of the emotions and the tolls that you went through this time versus the first time. Um, all right, well, the first time I didn't have the overall responsibility, right? I was very much a cog in the machine, right? In the wheel of things. So, I mean, it was really December of 87 where I kind of thought like, oh, like Timber Hill is gonna get smaller. Like we're gonna downsize, like, will I make the cut? And, you know, I, I made the cut and, you know, looking back on it, I was like, why did I even worry about it? 
this was a little different in the sense of you're responsible for a lot of people and you want to make sure that they all get through it. So those were the things that were keeping me up to make sure that everyone was where they needed to be. Not so much of like, oh, my God, the gold spreads are moving 150 ticks in a night, which they were doing. Uh, and that, you know, when something averages four ticks in a day, you know, and all of a sudden it explodes, you know, of course, like, you know, we go back and forth on it and it's all hands on deck. So I, I think this was the breadth of it all. So in 87, all I really knew was the equity market and the S&Ps in front of me. This was just across everything. It was, it was like putting out a fire in a different product almost every day, every other day. And that's the big difference with it. It was you had all these things that you can put up in front of the screen, which, you know, we talked about a little earlier, you know, the guy that could juggle a lot of this, you know, becomes a little more successful because there's lots of places to go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's risk management and being a good trader is so important at that point, because for instance, I look back now and it seems so obvious that, you know, China wouldn't shut down a whole province unless things were really bad. But the more I think about it, I wonder you know, I not doubting myself, but like if I had had that thesis and been like, this is happening, uh, this is going to be bad. I think I might have lost it all. Um, <laughs> I'd be, I'm serious because I, I would have been, I, w- I would have been up uh, a 40 bagger and then probably lost it all because I would be, I would have thought there's no way that this, you, you know, doesn't, doesn't go lower. There's no way it doesn't eclipse the, you know, the 50% that the dot-com bubble and the, and the recession did. Yeah. And I'd probably still be short. Uh, so <laughs> it really is important even when you're right or in these crazy markets, you gotta be, you know, have an assessment of the risk at all points and, you know, know when to hold them and when to give up and when a new trend's forming. Right. So, you know, this is this is a good mix that we have at Typhon along the spectrum of experience. So, you know, we have some extremely experienced traders that have been around for 25 plus years. And the first thing when this started to happen was we will cut our size across the board because you don't need to trade as much. Right. There's a lot of volatility and we still have to produce, you know, the same type of return. It, it's it's not the idea of hitting the ball out of the park. I'm a big believer in grinding. I'm a big believer, like, let me get to the plate. Let me hit singles. If I hit enough singles, then I'll hit a double, I'll hit a triple, and I'll hit a home run. And hitting those singles allows you to do a lot of selective targeting, you know, almost like sniping at certain positions. So, you know, take our energy guy, George McLopolis. You know, George did, made a nice call on you know, crude, you know, being sold off. And all of a sudden, you know, he comes in, this is like, you know, music to my ears, you know, Hey, you know, I just made 4% on this trade, which is a huge, you know, winner. Uh, I spend 25 bips on out of the money, put some calls. (laughs) I'm like, well, of course you can. (laughs) Those puts become huge, huge winners. And, you know, how do you get there if you don't have that success before, to be able, you know, you were talking about Jack, you know, all of a sudden I'm starting to give it all back. You know, your mind's not going to a place like, Hey, you know, should I, should I buy out of the money, put some calls, you know, like, okay, the calls are worthless, but the puts end up becoming huge winners, you know, nice to spend a nickel on something and all of a sudden be worth a buck and a half, two bucks. Oh yeah. And you know, you have to protect yourself. I think, you know, for instance, Lord have mercy on any of those, anyone who's short Kodak, 
a couple weeks ago, for instance. <laughs> like you, you always have to, I mean, just we talk about traders being money managers, whether you have clients or just doing it for yourself. And you really have to think about, you know, m- maybe not as much when you're day trading, you can do that by setting your, you know, stop losses and being responsible with that. But you got to protect yourself. So I, I'm a big fan of uh, out of the money puts and calls on positions. You know, especially with client money, you you look at client money. When it's your own money, you can do with what you, what you want with it. And, and I agree with you. If you're not a money manager of your own money, you're not going to have it. And there are a lot of cautionary tales of people. You know, there were, you know, a couple movies that were made about floor guys not being able. I haven't watched a second of any of it. I don't I don't want to see I'm not one to to want to see other people's misery, you know, like that's, that's not something that, you know, like I want to partake in. Yeah. Just for the listeners, uh, are you, are you talking specifically about floored? Yeah. Floored is the one that really comes to mind. Yeah. If a cautionary tale out there, if you guys want to watch it, it's kind of a, kind of a depressing movie. Yeah, um, very depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't, you know, I'm a pessimist by nature, so I don't need anything to, <laughs> to, I think of an old floor training. I'm drowning and you're throwing me anchors. You know, like I don't need to throw myself anchors. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I stayed away from all of that stuff. I, I don't, it doesn't necessarily bring any interest to me whatsoever. Uh, so I, I would rather watch a baseball game if I was going to spend time doing something. Even though it's been hard to watch basketball with the screens up on the sidelines and video fans and stuff. Like I... I find it incredibly distracting. I feel claustrophobic watching those games right yeah. now. I think the Mets have an app where you can <laughs> boo, like pump yeah, noises yeah. in for people and stuff like that. Uh, it's wild. I've been so out of my sports sort of like level or whatever. I've just completely forgot about it. I'm, I'm a huge White Sox fan. And I, I well, they kind of suck too. But <laughs> so I have not gone back into watching sports yet. I don't know. NHL has been pretty tough. They've been pumping in just random fan noise throughout the whole game. And that really throws me off. There was an interesting experiment that NBC did. I want to say it was 1980. It was a Jets Dolphins game and there was no announcing anything. It was just the crowd. And I did uh, color on radio and TV for Loyola university for 10 years. And, you know, so I, the broadcasting thing is of immense interest to me. And I had some really good partners. You know, Jack, one of my partners was Andy Mazers, who Andy Mazur, who does uh, radio now for the White Sox. Oh, cool. So uh, I, I had some really good partners over that time. And there's something about letting it breathe and being able to hear the crowd and baseball especially, because you never hear what goes on on the field, except if you were a White Sox fan and sat close enough to hear Ozzie Guillen nonstop talk for three hours. (laughs) I mean, you know, and you could tell like some of it's in Spanish, some of it's in English, some of it's mixed. I mean, it was, it was an amusement really. Uh, But it would be nice to be able to hear some of those noises and get a better feel for the game. Basketball might be a little differently because I don't think you could broadcast some of the language that goes on on a regular basis. Kevin Garnett out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that's that's interesting. If you ever sit close for a basketball game, you'll know what I mean. Yeah, my one my one Ozzy Guillen story is that uh, he lived in Bucktown for a long time. I think his son still lives here, and uh, I think Ozzy since moved to Florida. But I, I once with my brother ran into him. We saw him at a uh, Thai uh, like a restaurant, just a you know basic 
seven dollar entree restaurant, but it was BYOB, and he had a bottle of Cristal. Was amazing, but he, he's great, you know. So yeah, oh, that's spectacular. As again, so um, yeah, I guess to uh, bring it back as we kind of you know get towards the end here. What do you kind of see as the trends that are dominating now? Uh, you know, obviously there's been this huge run up in the five stocks that make up the NASDAQ. Uh, you have this dynamic of stimulus money kind of being the driver of everything at the moment. W- what are you doing? Are you still uh, just sized down and trying to feel this out or? No, I, I would say we're, I mean, there are exceptions to this, right? Because you've had different, you know, the gold move lately has been profound. Nat gas the other day really started to go nuts. So there are exceptions to it, but we're basically back to to regular sizing across the board. You know, we know how we get measured by our clients. So we're always aware of that and uh, what they're looking for and trying to find a happy medium to that. Hey, I think one of the best plays you could have done is probably be short mid caps and just long Tesla or, you know, <laughs> out really well with, you know, I guess some downside protection. But uh, I think now going forward, it has been tough. So for my own personal stuff, uh, it's been hard to not take profit. So, you know, I help with a lot of my family members and stuff and we don't own much right now, but you know, that's because, when you start to get into that end of it, 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 it's different because, you know, like my parents are in their 80s, you know, like they don't need to be holding stock. So, you know, you're putting on an entirely different hat than you would be as a professional trader. So, you know, I don't know if that, you know, how much relevance that really has into my opinion about the stock market. Things I'm concerned about is the next stimulus bill. Uh, if you're going to, you know, say people don't deserve $600 a week or they need to have something less that will have a profound effect on, you know, conservatively 20 to 30 million people. I know here and, you know, I don't live too far away uh, from Albany Park, the food kitchen, the lines, the food pantry lines can be two, three hours long and people don't care about COVID because they need food for their families. So like that, that really like is something that we keep an eye on because you don't know how that's going to play out in the overall market. So far, has an effective thing. We obviously have an election coming up here, so we will definitely be sizing everything down as we get closer and closer to that. You know, the old volatility bump where, you know, you can look at uh, uh, Nove and then the two months surrounding it, and you can see a little bump in the curve because of that. Uh, you know, that's something to pay attention to to see how that reacts to things. So that's the biggest thing coming up is the selection. Like, what is that going to be like? Is it truly going to be a runaway? Uh, Will things narrow? They tend to narrow as we get closer, you know, historically. So what will happen? You know, what will President Trump, you know, pull out of his hip pocket to try to play to to get him back into the race? Uh, Will Joe Biden be strong? Will he stumble? I mean, there's lots of different things. And then what will the Senate look like is probably more important than what the presidency will look like right now. I, I think that's something else to really keep an eye on. Yeah, because that Absolutely. that will be close. I mean, even even if things don't necessarily narrow in the, um, this would be a, just for our traders out there too, I'd keep an eye on that, especially because even if the presidential race doesn't narrow, say, and it seems like Biden's going to win, the Senate is still going to be very close because that's much closer to uh, a coin flip in the betting markets at the moment. Although the betting markets for politics are a little bit, 
you can find some easy edge there. I'll just say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> people are really voting with their uh, their heart. <laughs> um, it's like a fan going to you know lay odds on the World Series every year. You know, there's always the cup bump. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a Northwestern guy and a White Sox guy and a Bears guy. I'll bet against all of them. You know, <laughs> it's like hedging my own happiness. <laughs> I, I I think for any trader, what really you should be you know concentrating on, and this goes for you know purely systematic model algorithmic traders, you know, is what I'm deploying or what I'm trying to do. Do I have edge? And that should be the first thing that when you turn on your screen in the morning and look at, you know, do I have edge in what I'm doing? And you know, we talked a little bit about you know where you also see things going from a trading perspective. You know, you, you have some really crowded trades, which you should always be aware of because you don't want to be the last one going for the door. But for me, the real expansion I see is is more along the lines of execution. And what what do you really like? How are you going to generate some alpha for yourself in the way that you execute into the market? And that has a lot to do with just what you're trying to do. There's there's no there's no right and wrong answer that, you know, fits everybody, you know, something that could be wrong for Dan could be right for you, Jack could be okay for me. So it, it really depends on what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. You know, if I was a Euro dollar trader, you know, like I would be as patient as I could possibly be waiting for a fill. And yet if I was doing that gas, I, you know, my execution would be just like, just hit the market because you don't know where it's going to go. So those are two good extremes to kind of, you know, and, and you know, there are lots of places that, sell those sorts of execution tools they're really not that hard to construct on at least the basic level so i have one quick question for you you've created such a great career out of the whole industry and i think it's a common question i hear from traders and i actually got asked it yesterday um it was a newer trader and he asked me what's the actual realistic viewpoint of making trading and this industry a full-time profession what would you say to someone like that that's just getting going and trying to decide if this is something that they could really pursue. I had a talk with a, well, uh, David's not around with us anymore, uh, but David Goldberg, uh, his daughter and my wife went to high school together. And David owned the Burling Bank at the time in his own clearing firm. And I had gone to him and said, listen, I have this job opportunity. Like, what do you think? And his advice to me was, don't do it, kid. You know, <laughs> what else to do? And then I talked to his, his then wife at the time. She, she don't, don't, don't listen to David. You know, like go follow what you want to do. I think, Dan, it's got a lot to do with someone's personality and what you're able to do. And I think that was one of the things about playing sports uh, and growing up in that environment. You, you, how do you handle failure? Because failure is going to visit you in this industry. And how do you go about doing it and how do you overcome it to become consistent? So I think those emotions that run around it, and that goes for any sort of trader, whether you're totally relying on a model, that model still has to be constructed, right? It still takes on your personality in some way, shape or form. So if you can't deal with the fact that something doesn't work and that you have to go back to the drawing board and you have to pick yourself up, then this is, isn't an industry for you because that is, that is going to happen. It's a certainty. So uh, I, I think that's the number one place you start with. You know, I get that question too, Dan, about, so how did you have such a high success rate with traders? And I wish I could say, oh, this is the X factor. 
but it, looking back on it, I think one, we were sort of a gang because we were smaller, you know, we ate breakfast together, lunch together. Like, so there was that, you know, crowd mentality to it, to kind of conform with the way we were going about doing things. But I think all of it is too, that can you pick yourself up and brush yourself off? I think it's actually one of life's, you know, really big, cool things, you know, like you feel better when you can pick yourself up and get going and moving forward again than wallowing in your own misery. And there's always a little bit of time for that, but you know, you make it short and move on and figure out what comes next because, you know, that's the person that becomes successful in this business. Uh, I also think there is an age factor to it too. You, you don't see many 70 year olds slinging S and P futures. So I think there's part of the, the, the perception of what risk is as you get older. You know, I, I think guys that are in their 50s and 60s make excellent risk managers because, you know, if they've been in the business all their life, they kind of seen just about everything they can. So uh, I, I think, yeah, there is an age factor as you get older. So I, I think at the very beginning, I kind of viewed it as pro sports. Like, can you get a 10-year career? Can you get a 15-year career? For me, it's turned into a 30. So, you know, there are, you know, different things that can kind of push you along. But yeah, going back to it, Dan, very much like how do you, how do you handle failure? Do you treat your successful trades the same way you treat your losing trades? All right, so you had a big winner, right? And it's an outsized winner. Why? Why? I would ask you the same thing about a loser. Like, so why did you let this loser go? Why did you let the winner go? What reasons were there? And then let's figure out something about how do we put bumper guards around your perceptions of that. That was an excellent answer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I wanted to get into this, I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I'm ready to start trading. I think it was like 16. And was, <laughs> no, you're never doing this. <laughs> he, hired, he hired me at 18, and I started <laughs> managing his position to keep him delta neutral. Then yeah. he threw me in the pit at 19, and I traded, for, and I traded in the pits until I was, you know, on and off for seven years. Finally, he's like, all right, the pits are gone. You have to get out of here. You need to go be on the screens. But it was the same thing. He's like, I don't want you getting into this industry. But I was like, this is just the right place for me to be. I, I think I have to be in this industry. See, that, and that's a good thing. And, and that's also some of the things that we do with our traders, right? Like you, you, can, you can put up the wall and make them defend what they're doing. So to give you a little bit of background, you know, my dad's got a PhD. My mom is, you know, has a master's degree. And when this whole road started, I was lucky. Uh, I had redshirted a year at Loyola and was able to get my master's degree on a basketball scholarship. So when I went down to the floor, you know, the first thing out of my dad's mouth, you don't even need a high school education to work. (laughs) What are you doing? And I had grown up really loving three things. You know, it was golf, basketball, and baseball. And basketball really took up, you know, a good part of my early life. Uh, And when I walked on a trading floor, it was, oh, like, this is like, I was meant to be here. So I had that innate feeling inside of me of like, oh, I I can do this. I can be here. And I guess, you know, that might be a little arrogant for a 22-year-old at the time, but it just seemed like the right environment for me. And it's to be able to defend that to, you know, this big 6'4 German dad who (laughs) deeper voice than mine uh, was something that, you know, I had to defend it to him because he's like, well, you know, you could make four times the money right now than you are going to be working for, for these guys. So uh, I, I think that's a good thing, you know, that your family around you, Dan, like challenged you, you know, like, okay, that's part of growing up, isn't it? To, to be able to, 
sit there at, at, you know, 16 years old and going, I think I want to do this. And, you know, here comes pops that goes, yeah, never. Kid. Yeah, you know, like, not oh, happening. Yeah, not happening where, you know, like you have to find time with it. Uh, I think it's a great thing. I, I do that a lot with younger kids I teach basketball to. You know, like I, I make them earn time to be on the floor and to be taught. So, like, they have to have a desire to do it, and they want to be there instead of turning it into a babysitting, you know, sort of regimen. So, I think that's there's great. No passion. Did, yeah, your dad did a great did a great favor for you. You know, I'm sure that come up, you know, in other parts of your life as as you've gotten older. Yeah, you gotta want it. So, uh, Clue, we're almost out of time today, but if people want to learn more about Typhon, uh, where can they find you at uh, TyphonCap.com? Yep, that's the place to go. And you can catch me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, same thing with, with James Catullus. Uh, and then all those links will obviously kind of put you around to everybody else. Right on. Well, Clue, thanks so much for joining us today. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate being on today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Everybody, thanks for listening. And we'll join you for a few seconds after that sound effect. Hey, everybody. Thanks for making it to the end of the Limit Up podcast presented by the Top Step Trader Corporation. Are we a corporation? Does that count as a corporation? We're technically an LLC. Okay. I I should have thought about that, you know, the corporate governance structure. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) yes, speaking of uh, corporate financing decisions, you see that uh, Tesla five for one stock split? (laughs) The stock just 10%. (laughs) Everyone wants in. You know. I want five shares now. Yeah, we got Tesla's going five for one. Apple's going four for one. Um, how about Apple though? Let's talk about Apple for a quick second. A year ago, we had like no companies in the trillion dollar mark, right? And we started to see towards the tail end of 2019, we started seeing. I think it was Alphabet was the first one went a trillion dollars, and you had Apple and a couple of these and Amazon, and they all start hitting a trillion dollars. Today, Apple is worth over $2 trillion. Yeah, that is the four comma club with a trillion dollars to spare. Uh, You know what's ridiculous about that? And, you know, obviously the market's always right. And whatever people are willing to trade at, that's what it's worth. I think it's really shocking when you start putting that in terms of U.S. GDP. So we're like, you know, something in the low 20s. God knows what will be this year, but 20 something trillion dollars a year. So Apple's 10 is the market of Apple's 10% of yearly U.S. GDP. Now throw in the other five companies, the other trillion. And it's, it's, you know, a quarter of U.S. GDP. Well, and it's funny as I sit here in my office right now, I have an Apple iPhone. I have my Apple watch on. I am watching TV off of my Apple TV and I have my MacBook in the corner. I am part of the system. I have no problem accepting it, but they create a, a quality product everywhere you go. I'm sure you're sitting there and you have an iPhone next to you. Oh, and I have my AirPods. I mean, how much more of a poster boy can I be? I I am the similar way. Uh, that being said, though, when you look at say the price to, I won't even talk price to earnings because that's you know friggin' ridiculous for all these companies. But <laughs> price to sales, even I believe I saw yesterday that on price to sales that Apple is trading, uh, that, that all those fan companies are trading essentially at the highest since a comparable time with the uh, 
you know, internet bust. The valuation right now, you're going to have to buy 30 more Apple products, Dan. You need exponentially more. I'm going to need like an Apple bed. Step it up. I'm going to need an Apple car. I'm going to need, you know, an Apple dog or pet of some kind. I like, I don't know what, <laughs> what they're going to do next. They, I'm sure they got an Apple dog collar coming out at some point track your dog or something yeah i'm sure you give him his blood pressure and you know how he's feeling on a scale of one to ten right that temperature <laughs> is uh at a good level and then sell it to advertisers <laughs> hey we could start that business model we could be the new hey your dog needs his uh flea and tick medicine surrey recommends you use this at flea and tick oh man this is great well uh dan i think down that rabbit hole we could talk about this more on coach's playbook uh it's almost the weekend you going to be enjoying yourself? Absolutely. Uh, per usual, I'll spend the weekend on the boat, on the water, and just enjoying life. What are you guys going to be doing out in Wyoming? You got some uh, rodeos to go to or something? We actually do. Uh, the outdoor, the Dubois Rodeo is Friday night. It's a nice outdoor, socially distanced thing to do. And then it is my cousin's wedding on Wednesday. That is That'll be great. the purpose of being out here. So I'll have a good time. Everyone out there, hope you're having a good time too. Hope you've uh, been long Apple recently. we'll see you next week namaste and trade well the limit up podcast is produced by dante 32 Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.